welcome to the Urban Talk podcast, where we talk all things urban, demystify development, and break down the barriers between the development sector and local communities. I'm your host, Belinda Barnett, and today I'm talking with Mira Jafari, who is the Director of Policy and Urban Analytics at the national urban planning consultancy firm, Mekone. Welcome, Mira. Pleasure to be here. Today, with Mira's help, we're going to deep dive into strategic planning and policy making in Sydney. We're going to understand a little bit more about the framework that governs strategic planning, and we're going to sort of deep dive into understand what's working and maybe what isn't working in that strategic planning arena. We often talk about statutory planning, which is associated with the legal framework that governs the development approval process. But strategic planning is what guides and shapes the future of our cities and our regions. I remember when I first started to study planning, people would say to me, what are you doing planning for? There are no cities left to plan. But our cities, as you know, Mira, are not static. They're constantly in a state of change. And that management of change is occurring under our strategic planning framework at a federal, state and a local government level. And I think it's true to say that most probably in the last decade, we've seen a renewed focus on strategic planning, which is most probably led in part by the establishment in 2015 of the Greater Cities Commission. Samira, as a strategic planner, what do you really enjoy about that area of work that you've chosen to specialise in? And do you see yourself as an urban futurist? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting question. So what I like about my job is uh, just the level of impact, the ability to impact real lives, real communities. And I think that's very, very powerful. I like the fact that it's a field that probably crosses over a number of different disciplines. You don't necessarily have to be specialized in a particular area, but you get to learn different things about different fields and uh, really planning is is the sort of specialization that brings everything together and sort of translates it to, you know, how development and, you know, change can occur on the ground. So I think that's pretty powerful. Whether I'm, or not I'm a futurist, I probably wouldn't consider myself as a futurist. Perhaps where my interest lies is actually looking at the past and understanding trends and making observations about how you know, things are done well in other jurisdictions and lesson, uh, learning lessons um, out of those. That's interesting how, that you are drawing out the importance of looking in the past and seeing what has worked and what isn't working in order to be able to plan for the future. From your perspective, when we're starting to sort of drill down on New South Wales and Sydney, what are the key strategic policy documents that are shaping development sort of holistically in New South Wales at the current time? So to me, the key strategic planning documents are those that either set the direction for investment in major infrastructure. So that's your city shaping infrastructure, the roads, the rails, the major hospitals, universities and the like. And those plans that set the vision and aspirations for how communities are going to change and grow over time, where people are going to be living, where they're going to be working and how they're going to be moving and interacting. So over here in Sydney, uh, perhaps the three main strategic planning documents are the future transport strategy, the state infrastructure strategy, and the Greater Sydney Region Plan, which is currently in the process of being reviewed. At a local level, councils also play an important role. They firstly feed into those state level plans by providing local information, but more importantly, they're involved in giving effect to those strategic plans by reflecting those 
directions and priorities of the plans in their local strategic planning statements and then implementing them through their local environmental plans or through other mechanisms. Just in that relationship between state and local, how much say is local government really having at the table when we are creating state planning policy? Where is the balance of power lying? Is there a puppet master Mm. when it comes to the actual formulation of these plans? Is it the state government? Sure. I think both the state and local government play very critical roles. I think the way our planning system is set up is such that the state government perhaps has uh, the power or uh, authority to make legislation or uh, set the key directions about how growth and change is going to occur. But in saying that, um, I think local government is very, very important. They hold invaluable local insight that is really critical to sound strategic planning and they're the ones who are the most connected to their local communities. They are aware of, you know, the hopes and aspirations of the community for their places and you can't really separate strategic planning from that understanding of what the communities want. In a perfect world, I suppose both levels of government would be aligned and would be working together and towards common goals. However, in reality, sometimes things work differently. Yeah, I mean, there are those frustrations that you do see happening on the ground. I mean, particularly, we run a lot of community consultation. The big issue is to do with population growth and housing supply. And we understand that there is a housing supply crisis across many communities. Those two big picture strategic directions are not always readily understood Mm -hmm. or in sync with policy. So we're always in this with strategic planning, this constant push-pull situation. For me, Cone, as a as a national planning consultancy, you have both you know public and private sector clients. You're obviously in, in the area that you work in. You're called on to advise on strategic planning policy documents, most probably for state and local governments. Mm-hmm. And at other times within your consultancy, you're also called on to prepare development applications or planning proposals to rezone land. In these varied roles, what's your take on what is and isn't working at the current time with strategic planning policy and its interface with the statutory planning assessment process? Yeah, look, I think my observation is that at a policy level, we generally have sound strategic objectives. I think the general goal at a very high level is improving socioeconomic outcomes for all of Sydney siders. I think we all agree that we've got a problem in that the way housing and jobs have been planned in the past. There has been a bit of an imbalance in that, you know, jobs have been in the East and houses have been in the past. And we now recognise at a policy level that, you know, this is a problem that we need to fix. So at a high level, I suppose the strategic objective is try and uh, fix that and try and grow housing in areas where there is access to jobs and people can get to the services within a reasonable time frame. So that's all good. However, I think we're working within a planning system that is overly complex. And I think that uh, that complexity doesn't provide enough certainty for investment. And that adds to the cost of development and acts as a barrier to development. I think if you look at, for example, the greenfield areas in Western Sydney, government has rezoned a huge amount of land for residential and we're counting on those residential areas to be able to accommodate a large proportion of future growth. However, if you scratch 
below the surface, you will find that, you know, not all of that land is development ready. And what I mean by that is land either um, has major environmental constraints, such as flooding and biodiversity that hasn't been resolved or can't be resolved in the foreseeable future, or it has got some major gaps in terms of enabling infrastructure. So we're talking sewer and water and roads without which development could actually proceed. Or we're having um, a situation where development is just not financially viable when you take into account, you know, the all the costs that are involved in development. I think we don't have a good system in place that paints a clear and transparent picture of how much development ready land got available and what's the programming and sequencing of delivery of that infrastructure and how that is aligned with demand, um, the growth that we need to accommodate. In the more established areas where infrastructure is less of an issue, we've got, again, restrictive planning controls, we've got a complex planning system, and we often have opposition uh, from communities. So look, I think the result of that is a planning system that is under severe pressure and we've got to do something about it. We've got to fix it. Mm, I know the planning minister has a big job. The new planning (laughs) minister has a very big job ahead of him. So just on that, so when we're talking about land having been rezoned but not being suitable or not development ready, do we have enough within the current strategic planning framework, enough opportunities to go back and revisit and to make amendments to strategic plans that are in place? Because I know there will be developers out there who have frustrations where they may be looking at a parcel of land that hasn't been included in in a regional plan or Mm -hmm. one of these bigger state-led strategic plans, but would be prepared to invest in the baseline infrastructure to be able to bring it online, but can't get the cut through the planning system because it's not identified as a state level. So, you know, a planning proposal can't be supported. Do we need to make the strategic planning system somehow more responsive? That's right. I think, yes, I agree with that. I think at a starting point, we need to have the right data and evidence in front of us. I don't think we've got that at the moment. And I think that's a core part of the problem. And then from there, yes, I think we need to make some tough decisions around, you know, rezonings that may have happened in the past that perhaps haven't been in the right location. And through some of the work that we're doing, for example, on the urban development programs, we have identified that there are actually areas that are not zoned, but they are much better able to accommodate growth in a much more cost-efficient manner. But as you say, we probably don't have the right systems in place to be able to, you know, have those conversations and, you know, enable change in a timely and efficient way. Yeah, just it becomes very frustrating, particularly, I mean, I I know with some of my clients, you can't even get a hearing to be able to put a case on the table to alter a strategic plan, even though there seems to be a lot of evidence in favour of the proposal. Yeah. Maybe let's talk a little bit about, because it's my, what what I love to talk about, um, public (laughs) participation in strategic planning. Investing, I guess, in thorough community consultation when government is setting strategic planning policy is critical because strategic planning, as you've just said, is is based on some really, you know, big state-led city shaping decisions, you know, concerning population growth, housing delivery, infrastructure delivery, employment. And ideally, these types of decisions should have been through robust community debate. And when I say these types of decisions, I, I, I think there's a case to actually consider alternative land use scenarios. Whereas I don't think that 
is happening. I always remember and and like going back many many years to my final year in planning at New South Wales Uni. The the professor at the time talking very clearly about we need to consider varied land use scenarios when we are looking to actually settle upon a strategic plan for a local area. But and this is just my opinion. But I think that the consultation that is occurring um, at this plan making stage is often under resourced too narrow and very superficial in its focus. And it's not really getting to any debate with communities about alternate futures. Mm -hmm. I feel like communities are being told what will occur under a state plan and that the consultation is more an information process about explaining what a state plan is going to deliver to them, not so much really saying, well, are there different ways to actually meet the same end goal? And can we talk about that? Or should the actual goal be something completely different? What's your view on sort of the consultation that is occurring when we're making these very, very important strategic plans? Yeah, firstly, I would agree that community consultation is critical for sound strategic planning decision making. I think if you think about planning in very simple terms as a way of developing and implementing your future outcome, then of course it's critical for that future outcome to be based on the aspirations of the communities for their place. I think we really need to recognise that people have connections to the place and the decisions that we make affect how they experience place and how they interact with it. So from that point of view, I think I it's very critical for cons consultation to occur at every stage in a planning project. There is certainly engagement that occurs at various phases in the life cycle of a planning project, but I think I tend to agree with you that consultation, particularly at the strategic planning phase, sometimes feel uh, limited or there's perhaps a perception that it might be a little bit tokenistic. Sometimes communities are concerned that by the time they're engaged, then certain decisions are already made. So that is an issue. I think it's important at the same time to recognise, and this is my personal uh, view and observation, is that people tend to actually want to engage when they have a specific plan in front of them and where they have clarity or they have good understanding of how this plan is going to directly affect them. And that is probably why we see most of the input or objection or whatever we, want, we might want to call it at that pointy end of a planning project. But I think I do tend to agree with you that, you know, we probably need to do more at that strategic phase. In terms of really having honest conversations with the community, the reason behind the decisions we're making, what are the trends, what is the likely future scenario in front of us and what do we need to do about that? What compromise do we need to make? I think those are very, very important. I remember from my time working in state government, being involved in writing strategic documents, we were always encouraged to have a certain style of writing, which was very, very positive, always painting a very rosy picture of the future. And we always had this tendency to avoid having the difficult conversations about the challenges that we're facing. So this was always kind of something that I used to think um, about a lot because I think part of the government's job is actually educating communities, explaining some of the tough decisions that we need to make and the, the reason behind them. So I think, um, yeah, I agree with you that that needs to happen at the earlier stages in the project. And hopefully if that happens, then that'll mean that, you know, some of the conflict that occurs, you know, later down the track can also be avoided. 
Yeah, I think with the, you know, with the consultation, one of the, the key areas is that people don't understand the weight that is given to strategic plan, these strategic mm-hmm. planning documents like regional plans or, and not really understanding that they, you know, as we talked about previously, they can be easily varied. They are becoming quite, you know, monumental blueprints for how people's local areas are actually going to take shape. And I think just even as part of the consultation, just trying to be able to set the scene a little bit clearer for local communities about the importance of these documents. I think is really fundamental to consultation processes. As you said, you know, I mean, how many times do you see it? We we get to a, um, we say it all the time. We get to a consultation event, and people are particularly anything that's involving density or population growth, and people are, you know, it's outside of the character of our area. Shouldn't be allowed to occur. Our area is special. You know, this type of development isn't for us. It's okay in other parts. We understand that Sydney needs to have density. We understand that there needs to be housing supply, but it shouldn't be going in our local area. And I think that's another really big sort of decision um, that needs to be communicated with, particularly when we're talking about issues of population growth and density. You know, this notion of a sharing of growth and density across communities, not the sort of sense that it's being lobbed on one community or another community, but this really concept of we're in it all together. Absolutely. And I think that those discussions, are, I think many more discussions need to be occurring. And maybe the, you know, the federal government's got to buy into this a little bit more as well in terms of population growth and, and housing supply. What more do you think can be done in the engagement space to help establish policy? Are there any councils that you've worked with or, or other, even other agencies you know, with all specific projects where you've seen engagement on strategic planning being done really well? I think we were having a conversation about this before. We've been doing quite a bit of work in regional New South Wales. Right. And I find that some of those regional councils are a lot more connected to their local communities. Some of them have a very clear program of engagement. They're very, very clear on the scope of engagement, the purpose of engagement and what they want to get out of the communities. So, for example, we're doing some work with Albury Council and I'm always impressed by the desire to, you know, incorporate community feedback into their processes. So I think Aubrey comes to mind, but there are also other councils in the regional areas that I think are doing very well. Do you think that's just because they're, they're literally, they're, they're smaller and they're just, they're closer to communities? And maybe they're closer and I think they've got a yeah, better understanding of what it feels and how, how their decision making is going to affect people's lives. It's certainly interesting, uh, so many different scenarios that we, we can talk about, but one of the things that you know, we've seen happen recently within the Sydney metro area, I think, is when local government doesn't agree with state plan decisions. You know, We see some pretty odd, <laughs> in, in some ways, knee-jerk uh, decision-making occurring. You know, For example, we've seen councils such as Wallara Council recently use heritage provisions to safeguard areas from redevelopment pressures. Surely these types of actions, while I can understand them from a a council's point of view, if they feel very strongly that a state-led plan hasn't been formulated in a way that they feel is right for them, but surely using these types of techniques is a sign of a process in stress and one that isn't working. From where you sit, is the strategic planning framework as it currently stands out of balance? Should local communities be having a greater say? 
Yeah, so I'm certainly observing a level of frustration within local government in that they feel that they're not uh, being involved as much as they would like to be in the big sort of strategic planning decision making. I think they're also concerned that the resources that are available to them is not enough for them to be able to serve the level of growth that uh, state government has allocated to them. I think especially maybe we should say some of the high growth Western Sydney councils, the amount of revenue that council generates from, you know, your normal rate and development contributions and the like, they're nowhere uh, near enough for the councils to be able to serve the growing populations by providing local infrastructure, the footpaths, the parks and the facilities. So that's a real challenge. And in the more established areas, perhaps communities are uh, used to a certain lifestyle. Perhaps they've already got good access to services and, and facilities and jobs, and they're concerned about the prospect of change. So councils find themselves in this really difficult position in that, you know, they don't think that they can support the level of growth that the state government has allocated to them. And then at the same time, they've got communities that are opposed to that growth as well. What they tend to do then is to hold on to whatever power is available to them to block decisions. Then from a state government's point of view, there is that frustration that things are not occurring fast enough and their response to that is taking away the little power that local government has. And that becomes a self-perpetuating cycle, I suppose, and just adds to the frustration. It's a real issue uh, that we, we need to work on. Yeah, I mean, it's, so, I mean, from your perspective, is it that the state government isn't listening to what local government is saying to them or is just taking it with a grain of salt? I think part of the issue is that councils do tend to be very focused on their own patch. And perhaps uh, the state government has the task of dealing with the bigger picture and so they need to compromise mm -hmm. and that might be part of it. But I'm, I'm sure better listening and better engagement and more inclusive processes go a long way in solving some of these problems. So do you think the strategic planning process is still too politicised then in New South Wales? I think the system is based on short-term political gains. Yeah. Yes, I think that's a real issue. Whilst planning is a technical discipline, at the end of the day, my personal view is that it is perhaps a political process because you can imagine a number of uh, future scenarios. You've got limited resources and you need to make decisions. And I suppose you need to take that through the lens of, you know, certain values or certain political views. So it is in a way a political process, but I think I tend to agree with, with you that we've got this system of having too much focus on short-term political uh, gain. And yeah, that's part of the problem. And I guess that comes down to just, you know, the framework of state government in that they're dealing with four-year terms. Strategic plans, they're usually, aren't they, sort of around a 15-year, 15-year right. to 20-year yeah. focus. They're long-term plans. So they're spanning often, you know, three sort of state cycles. And it's very easy if there's a, a change of power. And it'll be interesting to see what happens since we've just had a change of power in New South Wales occur. What happens within, um, say, the Greater Cities Commission with a lot of the regional plans that have been released, some of them have been redone you yeah. know, recently, but to see if we see a tr any sort of change in direction or going back to the drawing board with, with those plans. Yeah, I agree. I think if you look at successful case studies around the world, uh, successful cities are those cities that have uh, strategic plans that have longevity. They're those uh, plans that are 
based on a bold vision and a strong vision that is set at some point and it doesn't change every four or five years. They adjust it based on, you know, new trends and new data, but they don't go about doing, you know, wholesale change. I find that uh, over here, we probably spend too much time, you know, visioning and arguing about, you know, the future that we want and perhaps not enough time on the implementation. Yeah, that's a a really good point. And like a nice segue too into, Mm -hmm. because I I know you've had the great fortune to work quite extensively overseas. You've spent time in Singapore and in the Middle East. I'd love to learn and hear from you a little bit about those experiences and how strategic planning and public participation is done in um, those countries that you've been fortunate enough to work in. Sure. I think I might use Singapore as a really interesting case study and just expand on the point that I was making before. So about 50 odd years ago, Singapore, the government of Singapore came up with a concept plan based on a very, very clear and uh, strong vision. And they've spent the past 50 years really implementing on that vision. They realized back then that, you know, they had certain challenges and limitations to work with. They're very, very clear on that. They knew that they they are a small nation. They don't have the natural resources available to them. Perhaps the best way to thrive as a community is to open themselves up to the world and uh, really promote themselves as a true global city. This is what the vision was, to open up and be a global city. In doing this, in implementing on this vision, I think um, they identified that to be a successful city, they needed to deal with the housing issues, they needed to deal with the slums, and that's exactly what they did. They identified that to be a global city, they need to clean up their harbour and really maximise that as an asset. They identified that if they want to attract global talent, they need to create nice places for people to live in. So over time, I suppose they developed this program of, you know, activities that they put in place. Of course, um, they made adjustments over time, but that initial vision still remains the same. And I think that's part of the success of Singapore as a society. I think their governance structure is extremely lean and efficient and they work based on a true whole of government system that actually contributes to the success. I think they're very clear and aware of their challenges of the competition ahead of them. And back to, I think, what you were saying before about scenario planning. I think they're one of the earliest adopters of scenario planning as a whole of government. And that is incorporated within their budget cycles and their entire strategic planning processes. And I think that's really powerful because it just means that they're prepared. They're mm. prepared to respond to whatever challenges come uh, come their way. So I think in that sense, Singapore is a really interesting case study to look at. Whether or not they they have best practice in terms of engagement, I would say perhaps not. But I think because of that very, very strong vision, partly because of that, I feel that communities are very clear. They know what to expect. Mm -hmm. So that goes a long way, I think, in them understanding what's coming their way. And perhaps for that reason, there is less opposition. There are other reasons as well, but this could be part of it. And how about the Middle East? Where did you work? 
So when I was in the Middle East, I worked on projects in the Middle East. So I did all sorts of very large scale master plans, so the tallest tower or the you know biggest theme yeah. park and things that attract, again, global attention to the Middle East, which was extremely interesting. However, I think those projects are all delivered based on a particular government model that perhaps is not sustainable <laughs> elsewhere. <laughs> and perhaps there are some good, good, good case studies on you know how not to do Things. Not to do things. <laughs> well, it's been great to draw from both, uh, yeah. both uh, experiences uh, yeah. to to recognise that you know what is good and what isn't uh, yeah. isn't working. I mean, I touched on it before, and, and as you know, we we now do have a new planning minister, the yes. Honourable Paul Scully. So yep. welcome, Mr. Scully. And you might have already had the opportunity to sit down with him. I don't know, but if you had the opportunity to sit down with the minister to help him and his advisers set an agenda, what would you ask him to take on board and to reform to improve strategic planning policy making in New South Wales? I haven't had the opportunity to obviously meet with him directly, but I have been in the room where he has presented. And I must say that I really support his decision to simplify the structure of government and in terms of all the body, bodies that are involved in planning decision making. I think that our current governance structure is way too complicated and it results in inefficiencies. And I feel that the responsibilities and accountabilities tend to get diluted. So I'm very, very supportive of that review. I would ask him to really focus on implementation, focus on practice and practicality. Like we talked before, I think we've got a pretty good understanding of what needs to happen, where we want to be, and now really the focus needs to be on articulating how we're going to get there. I would um, say that we really need to deal with this housing issue. Uh, it's extremely critical. That is complex. It's going to take time and it can be messy, but I think we need to lay out a plan for how we're going to, you know, get ourselves out of this situation. And housing supply is part of the answer, but perhaps not all of it. It was great to be the Premier talk about plans to leverage government-owned land to unlock additional supply. So I would be very supportive of that. I think that we need to deal with the issue of coordination of land use and infrastructure because it's not enough to just rezone land. I think mm. we need to really foster a truly collaborative environment between the various agencies that are involved in decision making about land use and infrastructure. And finally, I think I would suggest to him that there needs to be some really clear performance indicators and a transparent mechanism for monitoring certain outcomes to do with housing, to do with accessibility, to do with jobs. So a transparent and evidence-based process would be great. Those well, are my top priorities. Oh, well, I hope you get the opportunity, Mary, to sit down and take the planning minister, you know, for coffee <laughs> and, and get to say that to him directly. I'm really interested in your comments around evidence-based planning. How do we actually bring that to fruition? What, what are your ideas about achieving that outcome? Yeah, so at Mekon, we have a real focus on evidence-based work. And we think that at the center of every good planning decision is good data and insight that supports that. So data analytics is a very important part of what we do. One issue that we identified a number of years ago was that it was a bit difficult to kind of uh, find your way through the very 
various uh, layers of information with all the different uh, local environmental plans, zoning controls and things. So we have developed a tool called Mosaic, which is a uh, geospatial interactive tool that we've developed fully in-house that layers up, you know, all the relevant planning controls. And this is a national tool we've got. We initially did it for Sydney and uh, then over time it grew to be a truly national tool. And we think that that actually got a lot of support from some of our clients and stakeholders in that it just makes it much easier to sort of navigate your data. And we're now looking at the future phases of that in terms of how we can use technology, data and automation a little bit better, because I think the future is going to be driven by automation and data and AI. And uh, we think that perhaps more needs to be done in terms of integrating technology and planning. So that's something that we are focused on. There's a public version of Mosaic that is out there, but uh, we're working on future phases of that with additional features and capabilities. Well, I think anything that brings all of those levels together and cuts through it is going to be very welcomed by both practitioners and members of the public and, yeah. and certainly the development sector. And I've had a bit of exposure to Mosaic and it's great. It's, it is a really, you know, time saving and, and practical tool. So. It could yeah. be a very powerful tool for engagement as well. Because, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Because, I mean, it, it allows you to explain in, in real time development outcomes for people to really understand them. And so, yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things we find is that people find it very hard to conceptualise development. So mm. it's a great tool. Well, I might bring our, our podcast to a close. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Pleasure. I've loved talking with you and, and hearing your insights into strategic planning and policy making in Sydney and across New South Wales and hearing your ideas and how, you know, the current process can be further improved. And I really do hope you get that opportunity to sit down with the planning <laughs> minister very, very soon. <laughs> Thanks for that, Belinda. Really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, no, it's been fun. During the year, we'll continue to invite guests to speak on a variety of topics. If you have a topic that you would like to hear about, please send it through via the Urban Talk website or email me directly at belinda at urbantalk.com.au. For updates on Urban Talk, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. My name is Belinda Barnett and thank you for listening to the Urban Talk podcast. Urban Talk.